So Naomi's middle name is Ruth, my Naomi, and we decided to do a name change where we would uh, complement one another's names. And so when we got married, she took on the name Naomi Ruth Reina, which complements my middle name, Ryan. Reina means queen, Ryan means king. And I was supposed to take on the name Justin Ryan Boaz Boyer. We have now been married 15 years, and my name is still not Justin Ryan Boaz Boyer because I can be a horrible husband at times. So, but one year for our anniversary, I'm gonna officially change it, and then it's gonna be the greatest gift ever. Because it's gonna be like, oh, finally you did that. But uh, today we're gonna look at some of the words of Boaz, and Boaz is, is the, the main male character in this book of Ruth. And we're talking about what it means to create and reframe the culture around us. Last time when we talked, we looked at Ruth and this idea of, in all of our lives, we have these key moments and decisions about staying or leaving or going. And it can be easy to take a tourist posture of life, where we're just kind of going with the flow, but we're not taking ownership of the choices that we're making. We're not taking responsibility of like, what is it that the Lord is saying? Where do I need to leave? And where do I need to stay? And where do I need to go? And so we're constantly relying on Jesus to be speaking to us and also trying to live into this idea of what have we been entrusted with? What have you, as a child of God, been entrusted with? And in your reliance on God, on Jesus, how can then you walk in being entrusted with something? So we are not tourists. We're not meant just to go through life um, and not take ownership of and responsibility of our choices, but to sit with the Lord and make hard decisions at times. So if we're not to be tourists, what are we to be? Uh, in Genesis 1 and 2, we see the idea of being creators and cultivators that Genesis 1 and 2 talks about, that we are being made in the image of God. We are made in the image of God. And all people are meant to be not consumers necessarily or tourists, but these people that create and cultivate the world around us, including our relationships. Andy Crouch has this great um, symbolism, this metaphor that when he says, when he reads creators and cultivators in Genesis 1 and 2, he's also thinking about the idea of all of us are artists and gardeners. So as a human being, you are called not to be a tourist, but to be an artist and a gardener. Now, both of these things, artists and gardeners, include paying attention to what is already there. It involves contemplation, so it's not just a quick reaction into some kind of hasty activism, but it is a thoughtful advocacy of purposeful work. We're not machines, we're human beings. We're not machines that uh, just do what we do. We can contemplate things, we can sit with things, we can think about them, and that doesn't mean we just always sit on the couch thinking about stuff for the rest of our lives, we're called to action. But a machine has a function, but it has no heart. And we're not machines. Machines have utility, but no authenticity. But we as humans are called to something better, to this idea of artists and gardeners. Andy Crouch says that artists envision unforeseen possibilities. Artists envision unforeseen possibilities, creating, creating something new on a blank canvas. And then gardeners, they take a look at the landscape and they look at what is growing in the landscape and they know what is beautiful over there and what needs to be weeded out over there. And they take time and effort to survey the land, to promote the good, but then to also weed out the bad. If you were to listen to the Holy Spirit right now, don't make this a spiritual gift inventory or anything like that, but out of those two things, if every single person in here is an artist and a gardener, 
Which one of those metaphors, which one of those pictures most resonates with you right now where you're at in your life? Because you are not a tourist. You are not a consumer that's just supposed to go along for the ride. But you are somebody that is supposed to uh, hear from the Lord and respond to the Lord. Is that in creating something new in the situation that has come about? Is that about serving the land and kind of discerning what you need to invest into and what really needs to go in your life or in, in, the, in the work that you do? And so today I think that we can make this connection where Ruth in the book of Ruth is an artist. In that in the midst of a circumstantial wilderness, she's looking to make something out of nothing. She lost everything, and Naomi, her mother-in-law, lost everything. And now she needs to decide what she's going to do. Is she just going to go with whatever comes her way, or is she going to make some, take some ownership and make, take some difficult uh, choices, make some difficult choices and responsibility, and create something, even though she doesn't even know what that something could be? And then comparing uh, the artist-gardener metaphor, I think that we could see Boaz as a gardener. Boaz as a gardener, meaning that he takes notice to the beauty of Ruth's loyalty. As she works hard in the creation of her new life, he looks with favor to remove distraction and hurdles from her path. And what I love this is that um, uh, Carolyn Custis jo uh, James calls this the blessed alliance. And in the book of Ruth, what we can see is men and women working together towards the kingdom of God. That it's not just that the women have this little thing that they do over here and they stay in their own cliques. And the, uh, uh, the men have this little thing over here and they just stay in their cliques. And she says that this blessed alliance can be seen in the way Ruth and Boaz work together. And it doesn't have to involve any kind of romantic relationship. In the, in the case of Ruth and Boaz, it does. But in the case of the gospel going forward, the idea of this blessed alliance going back to Genesis 1 and 2, is so important that men and women are working together to further the kingdom of God. And here we see Ruth and Boaz do so. So if you're in the scriptures, you can kind of follow along through 1, 2, and 3 as I give the cliff notes. Uh, but basically we have Naomi, who is actually the main character of the book of Ruth. She loses everything. She goes from Bethlehem. She goes up to Moab, uh, to a foreign place because there's a famine in the land. While she's there, her sons... Uh, marry Moabite women, Ruth and not Oprah, Orpah, Orpah. But then her, her husband dies and her sons die and they are left without any male heir, which back in that day was really important for protection and for care and uh, to continue to live a decent life. And so Naomi's just like, I'm going to go back to Bethlehem. There's food now there. You, Ruth, and you, Orpah, should not come with. You're going to be seen as outcasts. You're going to be seen as outsiders. There's nothing left for you if you come with me to Bethlehem. But Orpah, at first, and Ruth, both like, no, we're going to cling to you. We're going to stay with you. Naomi pushes harder and harder again. Orpah's like, you're right. I'm going to go back to my homeland, to Moab. But Ruth says, no, I will cling to you. And where you go, I will go. Where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people. Your God will be my God. And so now they go back, that was last week, now, so they go back, and Ruth is working hard, she's in the fields gleaning, trying to find food for uh, her family, for Ruth, and she's noticed by this man, Boaz, whose field it is, this noble man, Boaz. And Boaz sees her and asks, who is this person, who is Ruth? And so Boaz is filled in on 
Ruth's loyalty and what she kind of gave up and came to Bethlehem to be with Naomi and to uh, give favor towards Naomi. And Boaz is impressed with her loyalty. And so Boaz removes some hurdles and provides abundantly an opportunity for her to provide for herself and for Naomi. Naomi hears about this, the mother-in-law, and she's like, this is a kinsman redeemer. And if you don't know what that is, we'll get to that in a second. Boaz is a kinsman redeemer. And basically what Naomi tells Boaz is, I want you to go and, for simplicity's sake, I want you to basically see if he'll marry you. I want you to go to him and basically propose to him, which was not a normal thing. Ruth's like, okay, I'll do what you do. I'll do what you say. And so Naomi ends up uh, telling Ruth this. Ruth ends up obeying this time where Ruth didn't end up obeying the first time when Naomi told her to, to leave. But this time she ends up obeying uh, Boaz. And she goes and she does such a thing uh, after uh, a party late at night. She's there and there's this cultural exchange of things that would be confusing to talk about if we don't go into it. But she asks him, and this is what he says. He says, this kindness is greater than that which you showed earlier, meaning to Naomi. You have not run after the younger men, whether rich or poor. And now, my daughter, don't be afraid. My daughter here is a term of uh, affection. It'd be a little bit weird if like, you proposed to somebody nowadays and like, somebody would call you my daughter. That'd be a little creepy. It's not meant to be creepy in the text here. It's meant to be a, a term of uh, affection. And now, my daughter, don't be afraid. I will do for you all that you ask. And the people of my, my town will know that you are a woman of noble character. Although it is true that I am a guardian redeemer of our family, there is one other who is more closely related than I. Now, this is a complete cultural thing that's uh, common in the ancient Near East, but that is not common to our day and age or our, our culture. And the idea was that if uh, somebody dies, a male dies and does not leave an heir, that there was this system set up in order to care for the, uh, the namesake and the heritage of the man and in order to care for the namesake and provide for the widow this system where a brother or a cousin or someone that was related to the husband would then uh, at least be offered or at least offer this idea of marrying the widow so that she could be protected, so that there might be a possibility to have children, and so that that man's, uh, the deceased man's uh, lineage could live on. Now, it's not something we're used to in this day and age, and it might sound weird, but this was also an honorable way to try to care and provide uh, in the circumstances that they were in. So Ruth asks Boaz. Boaz responds with some of the words that are on the screen here, and he says, yes, but... There's somebody else closer. There's a, there's a first cousin instead of a third cousin or whatever Boaz was to Amimelech. And so the next day, they go to the city gate to make this thing official. At first, the other redeemer, Boaz asks the other redeemer, do you want to claim this land without mentioning anything about Ruth? And the other redeemer is like, yeah, I'll, I'll claim that. That's property. There's property probably involved, land that was involved that could, uh, he could invest into and then increase his own uh, financial resources. But then, Boaz says, if you do take this property, you are also required to care for the family, which includes marrying Ruth. Because you are there not to only take care of and get the land, 
but you're also there to think about the dead man's lineage and honor his family and his widow and his, what would have been his daughter-in-law. And so the other redeemer says, no, this cost too much. Why? Because while he can invest in the material property and prosper himself, having another heir means dividing of his own inheritance and his children's inheritance and resources. And he's like, it's not worth it. She's not worth it. So I'm going to pass. And then Boaz, like he said he would, fulfills this commitment to Ruth. And as you'll get to next week, they have a son. Boaz comes and Ruth and him together are in this act of rescuing and redeeming once what was a hopeless dead end. And so it's this really, it's almost like a Hallmark story except good is how this goes. And there's a lot more that goes on to it besides a romantic uh, fling or anything like that. And I would encourage you, if you're part of the Cornerstone email, to listen to the podcast that I linked uh, in the email to help you think about the book of Ruth in a different way besides some kind of love story, which I'm not saying it doesn't have love or anything in that. Naomi and I obviously have a connection to that story and have uh, used that in our lives. Um, but there's something more going on. There's cultural change in a very small way that is happening within the book of Ruth because of the way Ruth goes after what is good and how the way uh, Boaz responds to that goodness. And things are changed. You remember that Ruth is the great, Ruth is the grandmother of King David and the grandmother times 27. Is that right, Terry? The grandmother times 27 of Jesus. And so it's through this union that there is this awesome thing that happens hundreds of years later through the choices of ownership of being an artist and a gardener that Boaz and Ruth choose rather than just being tourists and consumers. They're taking responsibility, they're trying to follow the Lord, and they're trying to be noble, which goes to our points of application, which are two. First, noble is better than new. Noble is better than new, meaning inward inheritance, nobility, Inward inheritance of high character is better than a new outward circumstance. And that doesn't mean the Lord is always doing new things, so don't hear it in that way, but hear it in the cultural way that when we get sick of something, we're just going to bounce. When something happens that is hard and difficult, we're just going to bounce and look for the new thing. The outward circumstance may change, but is there anything changing within us? And what we see in Ruth and in Boaz is this, this noble um, uh, point of val valor. And in fact, both of them in the book of Ruth are considered worthy. They're called worthy. They're called this Hebrew word that I'm going to botch up, kahayil. Is that right? Is that close, Jim? Oh, okay. Let's just say it is. It's kahayil. Got it? And it, means, and it means worthy, it means valor, it means to be of worth. The text says of both of them, here of Ruth, where Boaz says you will be a noble, you will be known as a noble woman. And early in uh, Ruth chapter 2, I think it's the first verse, if you want to look it up, that he is a worthwhile man. And this idea of valor and worth means that you are a tree of full yield, that you are giving everything you have to the situation at hand. You are strong, you are qualified, you are wealthy, even if you have nothing. You are wealthy, you are capable, you are full of integrity, you have character, and you are courageous. 
It would take a lot of courage for Ruth to do the thing that she did in order to propose to, to Boaz. And courage always involves, most of the time, courage most of the time involves risk and fear. Where something is on the line, and yet you choose to do the right thing. Often, you can't be courageous and fearless at the same time. Because the inward nobility of being courageous is that you're overcoming the obstacle of fear. It's not that this doesn't exist. It's that this fear does exist and you're overcoming it. That's why we can say, hey, it took her, even if she failed, even if Ruth failed in what she was doing, it took her a lot of courage. That is still true, even if she failed in what she was looking to do. And similarly, we don't want to uh, negate this courage that we see in Jesus. We don't want to pass over the fact that because Jesus was the perfect human being and that he was the son of God, that he didn't have courage that he needed to overcome certain things because he did. In the garden where he was, where he was crying out for another way because he did not want to go to the cross, where he was at this point of, of internal suffering and strife, and yet he chose to do the Father's will, that the fear was there and it was real, and it was something that he battled with and he chose to do what was real and what was good. There is this uh, commentator that has surveyed the book of Proverbs and one of the things that he says is that if you look at the book of Proverbs, uh, there's the wicked and the righteous in the book of Proverbs. And I thought it was interesting based off of Ruth and Boaz how this plays in. He says that the wicked are willing to disadvantage the community to advantage themselves. The wicked are willing to disadvantage the community to advantage themselves, whereas the righteous are willing to disadvantage themselves to advantage the community. And so we see this righteousness and the Lord being worked out in Ruth and Boaz where Ruth is disadvantaging herself in order to benefit who? Naomi. And then on the flip side, we see Boaz who is willing to disadvantage himself for the benefit of Ruth. The noble is better than the new. The inward inheritance of high character is better than just simply changing our outward circumstances. And then finally, beware of another redeemer that isn't Jesus. We look for works of righteousness, whether religious or secular, to redeem us. We look for food or alcohol or sex or money to redeem us. We look for the mess and chaos in other people's lives to redeem us. We look for purpose and influence and image to redeem us. And many of these things are good things in their proper place. But as other redeemers, they are wicked. They would so-called rescue us just to discard us. Just like a villain who acts heroically for fame and manipulation which if you've ever seen the movie Incredibles, which I've referenced a couple times, the villain in there made the scenario, made the bad guy, and then pretended to be the hero in order to destroy the bad guy and look like the, the rescuer or the redeemer. That's a wicked redeemer. Often we seek out these other redeemers, which are at best, at best they provide an illusion of temporary relief, but no true deliverance from emptiness or death ultimately comes. But our true redeemer, Jesus, the righteous, noble one of God, rescues us not to get something from us, but to give us everything through his sacrificial love. Right? Jesus is the true artist 
who pours out his life to recreate us. And Jesus is the true gardener who is weeding out sin in our lives that entangles us, all the while blessing the grace that is already there by being made in the image of God. I read last week this interesting phrase or this interesting thought that many of us think we need to convince God to bless us. We don't need to convince God to bless us. He already wants to do that. He is generous, not stingy, nor can he be bribed or manipulated into loving us because his very nature, his very posture towards us is that of love. Joy, you and the team can come back up. So on the surface, Ruth was a foreigner. She was an outsider. She was an outcast whose people were the enemies of God. She had baggage and needs and was probably thought to be barren because she was with her husband for 10 years and there was no kids. And back in that day, the majority of the time, it wasn't because the man had fertility issues. The thought was always the woman. So she was barren and in that society just shy of worthless in the new society that she was in. But Boaz saw something more. Boaz saw something hidden. He saw the kingdom of God in Ruth and was willing to put his reputation and wealth on the line because to marry her, to join himself with her would involve risk and would involve sacrifice and would involve giving up certain things. The kingdom of God is like a hidden treasure found buried in a field by a man. In his joy, he goes and sells everything he has to attain that field. So think about that field in your own life and think about that treasure, right? Joan, part of that field that you're working on right there You're putting everything into that field? Are you crazy? Craig, that field that you're working on, part of that field is filled with rocks and stones. It's not going to be good to farm or to get anything out of. Laura, part of that field is covered in horrific chicken, pig, cow crap. And it's worthless. Justin, part of that field has not yielded anything for years. Are you crazy to put everything you have into that? Why are you doing that? And the reason is because there is something hidden there, in the deep of infinite value that makes all the baggage worthwhile. Those who don't know God chase after many things, even though God shows us all that we need. So above all, constantly chase after the kingdom of God, wherever you find it, and the righteousness that proceeds from it, then all you need will be given generously. The kingdom of God is like a hidden treasure found buried in a field by a man, and in his joy he goes and he sells everything he has to attain that field. May we repent and believe the good news of the kingdom of God. Let's stand as we respond with a song towards our Lord and Savior.